0: Steve Tung, fan of Leighton Orient and a walking footballer. Before I forget, there's a walking football, Euro or World Cup. I mean, you could be picked for England.
1: Uh, I was invited to go for a trial and unfortunately, um, well, I decided not to go because I had quite a lot on. Um, Walking football, for for people who don't know, is is basically divided into age groups, starting at over 50s. It's basically, for men, it's an over 50s sport, for women it's over 40s. And so, a club like Lake where they take um, competition and tournaments and so on very seriously, we have an over 50s team, an over 60s, an over 65s, all of whom compete in the Essex League. And we just this year started uh, the over 70s team with which we, we play. Only for Enders, except, and you might be interested in this, we appeared at the Watford training ground inside the, the, the enormous dome. Yes. Um, in the National Over-70s Knockout Cup, where we played, I think, four games. Unfortunately, didn't qualify, but the teams who did qualify from that event at Watford then went through to the national finals. Um, so, it's, yes, it's become very, um, very competitive, although it can be the complete opposite. Funnily enough, the, the team at which I started They have uh, its entirely mixed uh, matches. Um, on the one occasion that we did compete in the tournament there, we went, went abroad to uh, a tournament in the Algarve in Portugal and um, won an award for having the oldest player, which was an 83-year-old woman, who, uh, who took part uh, to the admiration of all, all concerned. It can be uh, highly competitive, um, as you say, internationals and so on,
0: Yeah, well, I like the idea of walking football. I spoke to Jamie Fahey, uh, who is a journalist for, well, he covers futsal, or indoor football. But walking football means you, you play outside in a court. And have you ever been caught running? Or are you quite disappointed? Oh, yes,
1: many times. Oh. Uh, I mean, constant. It is a constant. It's just the most difficult thing about the sport and the hardest thing for the referees. I mean, if you imagine that listeners may have seen, for instance, um, walking races in the Olympics and you may look at that and say that's not walking is it, that's running um, and there is a technical um, definition under which you have to keep one part of one foot on the yep. ground at all times but actually actually deciding whether that's happening or not is extremely difficult and very much open to interpretation so, and of course the, the, the higher up the more competitive you get the greater the arguments. We actually have a are uh, supposed to get a warning first time and the second time and then if you commit the same offence the third time you get a blue card not a red card but a blue card so you're in the sin bin for two or three minutes um and we actually have a sort of self-imposed rule in our team that once you're on two warnings and therefore in danger of being sin bins you actually come off and they send a substitute on um
0: oh, so it's like so a friendly yeah.
1: in one sure
0: is that what happens in yeah. friendlies when someone has a nasty tackle um you are not you are not the first Orient fan, late Orient fan, to whom I've spoken. I spoke to Adam Mickey, who has written a book called Orienteer uh, or re or Oriented. I can never remember. Uh, but the point is, yes. he was disillusioned with what was happening at Spurs. Supported Orient, didn't go to Spurs, and it was Spurs' best season for at least fifteen years. But he appreciated what was going on at Orient. He would drag people there, and then by the end of the season, people were willingly going. Just You never hear late an Orient fan in racism spat. You never see Brisbane Road. This is because they're in the heart of the East End, uh, an old Jewish club, Mark Lazarus, featured in Anthony Clovane's book, Does Your Rabbi Know You're Here? What a great story, Mark Lazarus. Did you used to watch him do the lap of the pitch in celebration? I watched him and I interviewed him perhaps two years ago for Backpass magazine. At which stage I think he'd already had his eightieth birthday. Wow. Uh, went out to
1: his house in Longford, and he was in great form. Had a marvellous collection, which I think one of his relatives, uh, as with a lot of players, but it was one of his relatives who collect, kept the scrapbooks and so on, uh, going back years and years, which was uh, which was wonderful to look at. So I had a great couple of hours with him. Yes, while um, probably the. The single most famous one of those celebrations was uh, the year I mentioned earlier, 1970, when we got promotion as third division champions, that he scored the goal that sealed the championship at home to Shrewsbury. And I can still see it now, headed in, headed in across uh down the goal at the right-hand side from where I was sitting, and literally took off on a lap of honour all the way along the main stand, behind the goal at the other end, back along in front of us to the halfway line it was a genuine lap of honour yeah. uh, which was his trademark um, at that stage 1970 with respect to him probably I'm sure he acknowledged himself slightly past his peak which probably came with QPR and the famous um, Football League Cup win in 1967 uh, which he played in and scored in and of that great QPR team with the manager Alex Stock who, who we mentioned earlier the more Twins and Rodney Marsh and, and Mark in the forward liner, probably, I think I might even have said this in the London book, uh, possibly the best third division team of all time.
0: I would actually, that would be a great piece. You could write that for, as you said, Backpass magazine, which is the football history magazine that I see in Smith's all the time. And because I was born in 1988, I'm once removed. But it's glossy, it's wonderful. Have you got anything in any recent issues or forthcoming ones? to promote the book perhaps, the book by the way West Midlands Turf Wars A Football History uh, Yes to
1: both those questions Good. in fact there will be either two or three pieces in the next one um, I did a, a very enjoyable, I mean they're all very enjoyable to do these interviews so it's, uh, that's the first thing to say oh, okay, and, okay. and in general unlike a lot of the modern players who Tend not to have a lot of time for the media and can't really be bothered. I uh, think these, these old players are delighted in the main to talk about all their old games, all their old friends, and their career. Um, so I did a, a very enjoyable piece with Terry Naylor, the Spurs fullback, who I think is interesting, 19, 1970s basically. I think he's interesting because he was one of those Spurs players who were the unglamorous ones, perhaps Graham Roberts,
0: Paul Miller, names that... Vinny Samways. No. Yeah. yeah, the ones, the ones who
1: did, did the dirty work so that, you know, Hoddle and Ardiles and Ricky Villa and the others could all get on the ball. Um, where Terry Naylor was unlucky was that he left. He had two years with Ardiles and Villa, but what people don't realise is that when those two Argentine Argentinians came to Tottenham for two years. The, the results were actually quite poor. I think they finished 11th and 14th in the first division, which was not what was expected. And it was only uh, the year after that, when they signed Garth Crooks and Steve Archibald, because what they desperately needed was a, a regular goal scorer. Um, it was only when they signed that pair that they had the success. Mm. One, one the cup that year, and that was just after um, Terry Naylor had basically been told he wasn't wanted anymore, and, and went off to Charlton, just down the road from me. So he was a very interesting interview. Um, the other interesting thing about him is that he turned professional very late, and he'd been working for years in Smithfield Market, which he always said was the making of it, Crikey. both sort of as a two AM starts. as a yeah, as a player, as as a physical. It, Uh, made him enormously strong, and he loved the um, the sort of down-to-earth characters there and and the values which they had, and which he said stood him in in very good value, in in, in very good stead in his career. That was Terry Naylor. And the other one I did, which had an Orient connection, um, was a player called David Payne, who was one of very many players who went from Crystal Palace to Orient, and he um, he actually now runs, Palace were always his, his number one love, he runs um, a newsletter for Crystal Palace, basically for former players and organises the reunions and all that sort of thing, but there was a whole host, people will remember the name of George Petschy, mm-hmm. who was a coach at Crystal Palace, who became Orient manager, um, and he brought with him a, a whole host of players, including John Jackson, who was a very popular goalkeeper at both clubs, and Phil Hoadley, David and others, so that was a, that was an interesting piece to write. And then, as you say, I have done a piece um, based on the uh, on the new West Midlands book, which is really about something I mentioned in the first part. Um, Stan Cullis and his years at Wolverhampton Wanderers what was an uh, enormous influence. He was he'd been a, a player and captain of the Wolves just before the war, um, and also. Sad talk about dementia and heading the ball. Um, Stan Cullis basically retired uh, very early, in his early 30s, immediately after the war, because twice he, he had virtually blacked out after heading the ball. In those days, of course, an enormously heavy. Yeah, it retained leather the moisture and yeah, yeah. that if he he didn't stop playing and heading the ball, he might not last very much longer. Fortunately, he had such a good reputation, uh, was such a good leader, that he immediately got a job as an assistant coach at Wolves. and when the manager left, he took over and then led them to that that wonderful decade in in the 50s when they won the last time that they've ever won the league title, um, three league titles in the 1950s.
0: And here is... Um, the dramatic decline of Jeff Astle and Tony Brown as one of the country's most potent striking partnerships. The joint goals total from 65-6 to seventy-seven-one, thirty-five-thirty, 71 35-30, 35 uh, 41 And then Astle got injured. Uh, so at uh, Jeff Astle, whom wh- we know football is an industrial disease, and it is, it's taken the Daily Mail 20 years of campaigning uh, to have it recognised as such, it's one of the many things that I don't like about football. It's just the, the willful turning a blind eye to this kind of thing. Of course, one of the things I do like is football literature. West Midlands Turf Wars uh, third in, well, currently a trilogy. Is it going to be a tetralogy? Because you haven't done the North East, although um, Harry Pearson's got that sewn up. You haven't done the South West or the South Coast.
1: How about Yorkshire?
0: Them as well. You never, you're not tenuous. from Yorkshire, are you allowed to write about Yorkshire? Well, I have
1: a very I've tenuous there. connection with the Midlands, uh, as I said, apart from the years there, a tenuous connection with, with Lancashire, I hope so, and it, it would be, uh, I, think, I think Yorkshire would be the, the most obvious one, it's also what you need really, you need a, you need a little crop of, of biggish clubs, who in that case would obviously be needs and Sheffield Wednesday and Sheffield United and Huddersfield, very important yep, uh, club historically. Bradford City played in the Premier League. So you need three or four big clubs like that and then a little proper of smaller ones who, in Yorkshire's case, seem to come mainly from, from South Yorkshire, like Rotherham and Doncaster and so on, to make it up. I did the book about the West Midlands. I mean, in many ways that it would have been sensible to do the whole of the Midlands, um, but there were actually just too many teams to fit in if we had to fit in Leicester and Forest and Notts County and Derby and all the rest. Uh, it would just have been too unwieldy. So the, the East Midlands would be uh, another candidate. But, and, of course, if you, if you do an area that's too wide, you're not really getting local rivals. I mean, are you know, Leicester and Stoke really local rivals? we Nottingham Forest and Stoke in, in the same sense. Probably not. But uh, no, Yorkshire, Yorkshire would be a good one. The North East, as you say, uh, has been done to an extent. And again, you, you've really got three clubs and then and then a couple of smaller ones. That's another possibility. But uh, who knows? we will you better see how this one sells and what the publishers say, I think.
0: I can't wait to take the Yorkshire Turf Wars. Yorkshire t- Turf Wars? What's the, the earth? Turf? Uh, sorry. Mum's from Hull. Um, Backpass Magazine say this book is a wealth of fascinating stories. Backpassmagazine.co.uk for back issues. Issue 76 now in shops. Features John Giles, Gary McAllister, Kenny Burns and many more. Maybe I'll I'll look out for it, as should you. Um, So you've written these three books. You've also written another one about Leighton Stone's most famous ever resident, David Beckham.
1: I think we can call him that yes, I've yep. not heard many uh, many contenders. Bobby Moore actually went to school in Um oh. but uh, for some reason his, his sort of schoolboy football seemed because he was brought up in barking. Um, his schoolboy football seemed to be with them. but uh, yes, David Becker was was born in the hospital in fact in Leytonstone. Well I suppose you could say I started my radio career because I um, very many years ago, uh, I and a man called Harry Harris, I know a, of famous Daily Mirrors uh, uh, leading football writer, uh, we were rivals on the two local papers in Walthamstow. And he rang one day and said, uh, I'm starting a sports program on Whipscross Hospital Radio. I need you to do it with me. And being Harry, we went at it full throttle. Um, I imagine me once in a while be persuaded to get in the occasional guest and, and Harry would ring and say I've lined up five Orion players to come in the studio on, on Wednesday or whenever it was so that was uh, when I first applied for a job at LBC um, uh, and they said "You, what radio experience do you have I was able to say well I ran a, ran a sports programme on, on Whipscoss Hospital Indeed. So that was where it all started. That was where David Beckham was born. It uh, is about to be completely modernised, if not actually sort of demolished and built from scratch. Um, and if you go online, there are various videos about, you know, save, save not save our hospital, but try and persuade the government to give us enough funding to make sure that we have the space we need and the number of beds we need, and so on. So yes, David Beckham, probably the most uh, the most famous Leytonstone resident, the most famous, then moved to, to Chingford. Um, so yes, I was interested in doing a book about him. It didn't really work out by side plan because I was hoping it would be a proper sort of full-scale football biography, which surprisingly nobody has really done. No, that's um, true. And I got um, a man called David Luxton, who is known as probably the best sort of football literary agent to investigate, and he contacted, he thought it was a very good idea, the synopsis I sent to him and so on, contacted all the main football and sports publishers and was very surprised and disappointed as I was at, at the reaction he got, which was along the lines of, oh, David Beckham's yesterday's man, nobody's interested anymore. His last book, which you may know, was that rather large sort of coffee table, £25 book that was basically photographs and just a few stories that we've mainly heard before. He said, oh, that didn't sell very well. They all think they could just yesterday's bad. So they're not interested. Um, so I found a very small publishing firm called Amberley who publish um, a, a rather sort of esoteric variety of, of books about things like uh, Great Canals of Nottinghamshire and Warwickshire um, uh, railway lines that no longer exist, and but do do uh, one good sports section, which is basically called 50 defining fixtures, um, under which they take um, players or managers at 50 of their most important games. And because I'd done so much research already, um, I was very reluctant to waste it all, like any free lunch, you never like wasting any work. And so I was able, in in doing David Beckham's 50 defining matches, going right back to his uh, youth career with Manchester United. I think, I, yes, I still think there's a, a, a proper David Beckham biography to be, to be
0: written. Well, you'd never guess what book I'm taking to um, Wimbledon this evening because this Christmas I can exclusively reveal that I am doing the 12 Days of Fergie. I've started it. It's long already, but I'm splitting it into 12. Ferg- Alex Ferguson, who turns 80 at the end of the year, um, will have so much hagiography written about him which mimics the hagiography that he's had before but I want to create using the football library a rounded portrait and of course David Beckham loved and despised and also accidentally hit with a football boot so I'm reading David Beckham's My Side uh, at the moment in order to get some quotes from it was there any equivalent to David Beckham and there is a very good answer some might say the best answer to this question in the 1970s when you started foul at Cambridge University, which is like private eye with a football kick, was George best the equivalent of David Beckham in that era some ways except i mean in the sense of
1: his attraction to people outside football, but very different characters, David, however he comes across, I think was a basically and certainly once he settled down with, with victoria was. Basically a, a fairly quiet, home-loving bloke, I mean, having all a slight sort of ostentation of style and so on. He was not a, certainly not a, a philanderer in, in the George Best sense. Um, the famous incident when George had a, a couple of girls in his hotel room on the afternoon, of the very important Manchester United Cup semi-final replay, which they then went out and lost. That's not the sort of story which you'd ever have expected to hear about about David Beckham. Um, and in some ways, perhaps purely footballing terms, much David might be much less of a natural. Um, I mean, one of the the, the well told stories is just going out into the park with his dad in Chingford and practicing day after day and evening after evening. Uh, when even his mother would would tell his father that he was pushing him much too hard and making him practice those crosses and those free kicks time and time and time again. Um, whereas with George, it all, all seemed, although he had a certain level of devotion to the game and to his talent, his talent always seemed to be uh, much more natural. I mean, people in those days, certainly not now, would pretend to say God-given. But uh, I, I think that's, that's a, a,
0: a fundamental difference um, hmm. between the two. I was just trying to think of... Figures in the way that Private Eye lampoon certain characters throughout the years. Piers Moron, and Bob. You can tell I've been reading for a few years. Uh, but a, a brilliant four-year run uh, in the 1970s. Was it popular on campus? Because Cambridge wasn't a football town or city. No, it certainly wasn't. In fact, uh, oh, that's prompted me. Uh the first
1: ever... Article that I had published in a newspaper, national newspaper, was an interview with the manager of Cambridge United at the time. Um, Coincidentally, my three years at the university were Cambridge United's first three years in the league, um, which was a great relief to me in many ways because uh, at the time I knew I was going to go there, they were still a Southern League team, and I was with the prospect of, uh, of being somewhere for three years with a, with a team that had no league football at all. But they did very well, and at the end of those three years, they actually got promoted to the third division. But but one of the themes, uh, the manager was a man called Bill Levers, who was an old Manchester City fullback who played for them in the FA Cup final. And he said in the interview... Just that, Cambridge just isn't a football city. He was used to places like Manchester and the North East, Sunderland and Newcastle, where I think it's was brought up. And he said they all find it very difficult. And in many ways, and this actually echoes one of the themes of all the turf war books, clubs, small clubs, find it very difficult to become big clubs. Uh, the big clubs tend to stay big because of the tradition they've got, the support they've got, the backing they can get. Whereas a club like Cambridge and all those new clubs who come out of non-league and become football league clubs will find it very difficult to get beyond a certain level. They they tend to get, say, into the championship like like Cambridge United did. But at that level, they are basically overachieving. And and in the new book, um, teams like Hereford United, Hereford United got into the second division of English football, um, as did Port Vale and Shrewsbury Town. But at that level, with the the attendances they had and the resources they had, Albion, um, they were all overachieving, sadly. And so Cambridge, you know, have remained round about that level. But to get back eventually to the answer to your question, no, it was a, a, you know, like any university or college, it was a very cosmopolitan sort of place. People came from all over. And one of the things I did appreciate was that there were an awful lot of football supporters there, which was fun. The idea with, with Foul originally... Um, it was often called 10 years ahead of its time, like, no, like Martin Jesus. Peters. And yes. One of the ways in which it was that we did intend originally to give it away free outside of a football ground on a Saturday and, and get the money in from advertising. And until quite late on, before the first edition, that was the idea, which is why if anybody ever gets hold of a copy of the first edition, there's an awful lot of adverts from businesses in, for instance, Tottenham High Road, uh, after I traipsed up and down Tottenham High road during the summer holidays selling advertising. Because we got that and because we eventually put on a price of five pence, um, it was probably the only issue which ever made a profit. I think the first printing bill for a 1,000 copies was £43. Pounds, and we took something like £45 pounds in um, in advertising, which as any businessman will tell you is exactly the right way to do it. Sadly, after that, it became much harder. We actually, at one stage, hired a professional advertising agent who basically had to just give up. Fortunately, he was only ever on commission. We didn't give him any money in advance. He said, I just can't do this. I don't know what the market is for this magazine. And so it it folded after four years in 1976. And it was another 10 years before um, actual fanzines, which was a word we didn't know in the 1970s, like the Bradford City club fanzine, and then when Saturday comes, actually started a good 10 years
0: later. Indeed, City Gent is the Bradford one, and don't forget Adrian Goldberg, Off the Ball. Uh, These are the very early football fanzines. At that time, they were trying to make football great again, and then the money came in. I wanted to ask you, because you've written these turf war books about over a century of football, what is the best era?
1: I sometimes think it's a bit like uh, music, that you know, you... Think the era that you grew up with is is the best. Um, wasn't there very recently a television program about the 1980s, claiming to be the greatest decade ever for music,
0: which was was clearly written and compiled by someone who grew up Dylan in the Jones, 1980s? Dylan Jones. Dylan Mister. Yes. That's he, right. he, yeah. There, but, this is he is Mister 1980s. Mister. I was at the Blitz. So 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 you would um, say the late 60s?
1: I think I would. And if you, I probably quoted almost all the books that the. The very early 60s, around about sixty sixty one, when, when Spurs did the double, was the highest goal-scoring rate in English football. And within 10 years, by the early 1970s, when it was basically Arsenal and Leeds clogging each other, um, the goal-scoring rate was the lowest ever. So the 60s, of course, with every year you pick out individual players and you pick out graded teams... But the, the 1960s was quite something. And the other thing about it, and that era, and this does stretch into the very early 70s, was that there were so many different teams. Um, there, were, there were two successive periods of seven years in which a different team won the league every year. It went not only Leeds, Arsenal, Liverpool, it went Derby County and teams like that. And later, of course, Nottingham Forest Teams like that, whom you would just say, and never mind the European Super League, teams from small towns like that, comparatively small towns, are, are just not going to be in with a shout of, of even winning the Premier League, which, which was really, of course, what made Leicester's um, achievement so extraordinary. But so extraordinary that, that, you know, can we envisage it happening again? Sadly, I think we
0: probably can't. Well, don't tell Chloe Shearer that. Although Newcastle is a city, it's Toon, but it is a city. I actually went into a charity shop near me. This is relevant, by the way. And saw a book written by Alan Shearer in the mid-90s. Um, now, given that Chloe is on the staff of Tongue Tide, uh, which is a company you're a director at?
1: Yes, it's basically run by my daughter. And my job is just
0: to keep the bank manager sweet. Good. So I, I have very little to do with the day-to-day running But <laughs> I Keeping the
1: bank manager suite um, for any business is, is an important, important part of it all, but uh, my daughter Jo basically runs the whole show, and yes, Chloe works with her, is a delightful girl, works with her. They seem to have made a great success of it.
0: Can you say who the most famous client is?
1: But she doesn't deal with many current players or managers. She deals more with people who work in the media... But um, she does look after actual media commitments of people like Michael Carrick at Manchester United and Kyle Taylor, who was at Charlton, um, one of her her contemporary players. She was also very lucky in, in getting involved and interested in women's football, just as women's football was really taking off. And so she has clients like Emma Hayes, the Chelsea manager. Brilliant. Um, and and leading women's players like Eric Cuthbert at, at Chelsea. And then it, it tends to be more pundits like um, Eon Dublin, um, who she works with, Dean Ashton, who appears on Sport a lot. Um, those sort of people who, who will quite often turn on, a, especially a women's pro, uh, football programme and, and find out that the... Um, the commentator, the presenter, and uh, a couple of the pundits are all um, all on the tongue-tied media list. So uh, so we got in just at the right time.
0: Strength to strength strength to to strength. And if you were really short on inspiration for Christmas presents, West Midlands Turf Wars of Football History by Steve Tongue, but also the top ten of everything, uh, which is Gary Lineker, Alan Shearer, Micah Richards... Uh, I've not been commissioned to say that. That is just, uh, it's like a, a book version of the podcast, um, which with all these top tens, I'm, I wasn't going to finish asking you a top 10, um, but just off the top of your head, you call a collective noun for journalists a hackful. So I'm afraid off the top of your head, Steve Tung, can you give me uh, a top 10 favourite journalist you have shared a press box with? First 10 that come into your mind. <coughs> Some of whom, well, I'll give you a clue. Nick Schapanik, Norman Giller, Chris Lipkowski, they've all been in the football library. Would they all be in your top 10?
1: Uh, yes, no one, no one loved them all. I mean, any one of my vintage would, would have to say Brian Blamble, of course. We all learned, learned so much from Hugh McElranny, very close to him. And as a, purely as a writer, the football writer and stylist, maybe maybe even slightly better Paddy Barclay, a very good friend and and terrific writer. I, I was brought up um, mainly in the Guardian by my father, the librarian, who we spoke about earlier, was very much a, a liberal in a political sense. Go um, out uh, canvassing for the, the Liberal Party, and so the Guardian was all in our house, and, and we had people like David Lacey, uh, who I also got to know very well and worked with. So there's, uh, what am I up to? That's that's about four or six or seven. Six or seven. They tend to be from the, um, what in those days were called the broadsheet papers. Great people and an influence. Another another one who people may not know, I'm sure you know the book, uh, The Football Man by Arthur Holmcraft, who was another uh, terrific stylist, mainly on The Observer in those days. When I became football correspondent of the, the Sunday correspondent, which was um, a rather, unfortunately, short-lived, paper in the early 90s, the one that took me to the Italian World Cup. Um, I tried very hard to get Arthur Hottcraft, um back into football writing, but he'd actually had enough by then. He was writing um, screenplays in one of the television series, the Tinker Tailor oh, wow. um, series, I believe. And was writing at that sort of level and so was very happy just to sit in the stand at West Ham and Certainly, the largest
0: football book. Oh, you could kill uh, someone! I always say yeah. you could kill someone if you drop the ball is round from a fifth floor window. Uh, and the Age of Football, which is the follow up, David Goldblatt. Yes, yeah.
1: David, David Goldblatt, isn't it? Yes, nine hundred odd pages on the whole history of football, but all, all told from a, a very interesting sort of social, social, economic perspective. I mean, amazingly erudite and uh, and well informed. Um, puts the rest of us to shame, but um, I, I think that might well become my uh, my favourite book of all the the many which are which are sitting on these shelves as I
0: said. Indeed, look at them now, and it's so nice to talk to someone who's been a broadcaster who so knows knows when to pause, so he knows the edit points, and who's got such a great football library. I bow to your superior pagination. Um, I remember seeing Jonathan Wilson's shelves. Uh, when I spoke to him. And David Goldblatt is one of the people I haven't yet lured, lured is the wrong word, attracted to the Football Library. Simon Cooper I haven't brought in yet. I'm sure you've shared space with him in a press box. And David Conn at The Guardian, who is, a, he was a, well, a genius. The Football Library exists. In fact, you have been interview number 198. It has been a delight to do all of these. Um, and I'm trying to read the 92. So it's nice to talk to a Leighton Orient fan, even though I've already ticked them off. I wish Orient so much luck in the FA Cup once you beat Ebbsfleet Town. And then in the League 2 with this manager. And Have you met uh, Nigel Travis, Dunkin' Donuts? Yes, many times. He's terrific at uh,
1: engaging with supporters. He reads everything online. I sometimes think they, they read a bit too much online and are perhaps a bit too influenced by social media, but... They are very good at all that, and no, he's extremely keen to engage. Uh, he was absolutely frustrated as the owner team was uh, during COVID times when they simply couldn't get over because they are still both based in America. Mm. But now that things are, the restrictions are being eased, he's he's able to get over a bit more, and they they literally do a you know a lap of the pitch and go into every bar in the ground and shake hands all over. And they are they are terrific owners, especially after the last. Orient had, which was a
0: disaster. Oh, we can't finish on that. We can't mention him. He is in the Hall of Shame. But it's so pleasing that Orient, who are a people's club... ...maybe founded in 1881, maybe not. We don't know. And 60 years on from that great season... ...still a football league club... ...still attracting youngsters through. And yes, I, I do hope, like Charlton... ...Orient survive in their respective division... ...or thrive this year... Um, maybe I'll see you at Brisbane Road. I'll, I'll join you and I'll get a signed copy of West Midlands Turf Wars of Football History. Uh, it's got a lovely green cover with Jack Grealish, Stan Matthews. Is that Tony Curry on the front? Garth Crooks?
1: Stan Matthews, Billy Wright, uh, Trevor Francis of Birmingham, Dave Bennett of Coventry holding up the FA Cup in 87. Yes, Stan Matthews and. One or two Villa supporters not very happy with the choice of Jack Greenish. They, having been a hero, they suddenly decided he's the absolute opposite for taking himself off to Manchester City. But uh, that that was always likely to happen. Covers, as you know, have to be chosen quite some time before the uh, the book actually comes out. Um, and although it was an Aston Villa, no, the point is not to say this is an Aston Villa player. The point is to say this was a player who was a great player for Aston Villa. The fact that he's gone off to play for another club doesn't mean that he wasn't ever a great player for Aston
0: Villa. No. Well, you could have put Dion Dublin on it, but he would have probably been too polite and would have declined. But congratulations on the trilogy. Yorkshire could be next. Uh, Congratulations on 50 years of foul next year. I hope that is marked in some respect or in some way. Tonguetiedmedia.co.uk. And at this point, because it goes out in December, I should wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And happy walking football as well. Thank you very much. It's been great fun. Just like the library! Just like the library! Just like the library! Just like the library! Shh.